the Christ of culture belief system basically says the opposite of Christ against culture. Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do all to the glory of God. But how we go about doing this in our day-to-day -day lives can look very different depending on our philosophical approach to the broader culture. In this episode, join Ike as he explores five of those approaches. The, uh, so we're, we're talking about culture. We've looked last week at Lewis and or Machen and, and, and Lewis, and we're going to pick up with them and move into Niebuhr and Keller today. But the broad strokes are, remember, that all Christians engage in culture. Culture is an expression of belief systems, and there is a unity between belief systems and culture. So this is our sort of foundational principles we've been talking about. Um, there is, There will always be re relative disconnects and continuity as people are trying to work out our expressions and what we hold valuable. But at the end of the day, we can take a broad picture of culture and say that if, if you exist in a culture, it represents a, the belief systems of some kind of dominant people group. Now, whether you call that a, I mean, you could call that in, in critical theory, we would call that a potentially a hegemony and there's all of these battles with cultures that are going on because there's not just one big culture. Big culture is often made up of many microcultures. And those cultures, as we said, and we've started every class making this point, so just to make it clear, those cultures, as we've said, are both nested. In other words, there's little cultures that exist in bigger cultures and that exist in bigger cultures and interconnected. So you have the image of the Russian doll, number one, and then you also have the image of, if you could then, then force your mind uh, in a psychedelic fashion to then imagine Russian dolls splitting into spider webs is kind of how it would look, all right? And uh, you know, it's like these, there, there's all these webs of interconnectivity of, of all these micro nested cultures. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, you've got a family culture, you've got a, you probably have a, a husband and wife culture even to a certain degree that then builds a family culture. And then your kids are part of that culture, but then your kids grow up and they do what? They start to build their own little culture. And then it's a personal culture. And then they build that out with their friends. And, and, and by the way, when people come together, that have some agreement on those cultures, they end up becoming a community of people that start doing this. And then you identify with a church culture, and then sometimes you identify with an art, art culture or a business culture, or your business wants to build its culture. And, and I mean, the famous phrase in the business world is that culture does what? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you've ever heard that in the business world, it's a, it's a very important phrase. And what it means is, is that you can think strategically all day long about how you want to engage and execute the principles of success for your business. But at the end of the day, those principles will only be acted upon in so far as the business culture supports their being acted upon. So if you have a group of people that are in a business that actually don't like metrics or like an organic environment and a guy comes in or a girl comes in to lead the business and says, all right, we're going to get one, two, three, four. We're going to get metrics. We're going to do this and that. And then nothing happens. Why? Because they're, the culture is not trained around those enacting those strategic principles. And the reason why is because they don't value strategy like that. 
They don't value those kinds of metrics. They don't value those kinds of benchmarks, right? So culture, that's what it means when we say culture will eat strategy because culture is founded on belief. That's why culture eats strategy for breakfast because culture has a more direct relationship with the foundational belief system and principles and values of a person or a group of people than any strategic or tactical thinking, even, even an out, you know, a, a, a vision for the future or something along those lines. So culture is vitally important. So we know that. We also work through about why we have a biblical paradigm to engage in culture, and that's because we're covenantal in our theology. Both from, uh, again, go back to, to Bill, Bill Edgar's great, wonderful book, Created and Creating, where he talks about the continuity between the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, and then our, and the law, the individual expression of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that loving God in the law, in some ways you could say that Jesus' distillation of the moral law in the Ten Commandments is itself an imperative to culture, isn't it? Because it says, foundationally, in your belief system, I come first. God comes first. Not just first, but it is through God that we see everything else. And that's when you, you ever heard a pastor use this. Dad's used this on a number of occasions. But have you ever heard a pastor say, you know, God's the top of my priority, priority list? And they say, like, well, that's actually the wrong way to look at it. God is your priority list. He should be your priority list. And through him, then you see family and work and your family and church and work and expression and art or whatever your priority list then looks like. It is through God that you interpret each one of those things, not that you put God first and then you do all the other stuff that comes after God. Okay, that's what that means. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind and strength. And then build culture based on that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as you're loving that neighbor, as you are going into those communities, then you get to teach and disciple and baptize and, and fulfill the Great Commission as you're doing those things, okay? So that's a broad view of culture, why we do it, the relationship between why it's important because you can't get away from it because it is the natural expression of, of all those foundational beliefs and then, why, um, and, then, and then how we're fulfilling our covenantal obligations while we're doing it. And so we've got these, these four basic things. We, we fulfill the Great Commission covenantally by doing this. We, we are therefore uh, have the opportunity, and this is what we looked at with Machen last week. We have a joyful consecration. There is going to be a lot of people that don't believe in God that are also building culture. That doesn't mean they get to think up new ways to build culture. They're still doing it on the paradigm that, it, that is given to us from the foundations of the world. And that is by subduing and having dominion and naming things and bringing order out of chaos, okay? And as they're doing it, they're doing it unto themselves and not unto the Lord. So we have a chance to take those things and consecrate them. And the word consecrate means to make holy. And Machen calls it the fertile soil out of which, the, that, out of which we have the chance to then evangelize and to tell the gospel story to people. So they understand 
why we're a part of that culture, why we're not isolated from it. So Machen argues for the joyful consecration, and then what we talked about last week with Lewis was building roads to Jerusalem. And we're going to look at one last little quote from that as we move forward. But recognizing the last thing that we talked about, number four, was that we are rooted in Christ, that we can't do this without being rooted in Christ. And that's where we looked at the extended example from Colossians 2 and 3. So now we are at the point where we've been looking at these views in the 20th century, Machen, Lewis, and Niebuhr, and Richard Niebuhr. And so we are going to finish up Lewis and look at Niebuhr and Keller today, and we're going to do that really quickly. So I'm just going to pop through these. We've already read these. I'm going to give us one last statement from Lewis before we move on, but we're not going to really talk about it too much. I think it's relatively self-explanatory. And this is the last statement that we'll pull from Lewis's essay on Christianity and culture from Theology Magazine 1940. Remember, Machen's was from 1917 or so, and now we're moving forward historically. This is part of what we're doing as well, right? So Lewis yesterday made the point, um, if you will, yesterday he made the point, let me just say this, that culture is the storehouse of the best sub-Christian values. These values are in themselves of the soul and not the spirit. The distinction Lewis is making right there is that every man has a soul, but it is when we are one with Christ that we also have the a spirit or the spirit. The the spirit is, in essence, the regenerated soul, if you will. Now, I could give you some passages to look into that if you want to look at what there's there's discussion theologically about whether that's accurate or not, but that's not what we're worried about right now. But that's kind of how Lewis is talking about it, okay? Just for your reference so you understand. He's saying God creates souls in all men is and all women is what he's saying, but not all of those souls are regenerated spirits as well. And the regenerated spirit is, again, when you accept Jesus Christ. Its values may be expected to contain some reflection of spiritual values, but they cannot in and of themselves save anybody. In other words, the broader general values, and he's not talking about necessarily a value of, um, he's ta- of, um, of uh, whether we're valuing openness in society or uh, you know, a, a gen- a, you know, generous orthodoxy or something on those lines. What he's talking about is just the basic values of honor, respect, dignity, creativity, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the kinds of values he's talking about here. He's talking about, he's a member, Lewis is a medievalist. Okay. So he's kind of referring to sort of the basic medieval values of Christian charity, if you will. And he's saying those are spiritual values, but in and of themselves, they can't do anything to save anybody. They resemble regenerate life only as affection resembles virtue or the moon, the sun. But even though they they, they may be like and not the same. It is better to be more like than unlike is what he's saying. Okay. So he's arguing that there is a middle ground here that when the, that Christians are involved in the arts and in the creating of culture, not just the arts, but the creating of community cultures, period, that while not all will exhibit fully Christian values, and those are values that are redemptive, as opposed to just simply respectful, if you will, you can make that, make that distinction between the two. It is better to have more that are like Christian values than more that are unlike Christian values. Okay. And then he says, 
This imitation, because imitation, that's a great point here. Imitation may pass into initiation. The more you're, I mean, and, and that, ha that happens. People come to church as unbelievers and are around people who treat them well, who love them, who reach out to them. That's why it's important when you're sitting in your pew on Sunday mornings, look around you. If you see somebody you don't recognize, go say hi. Get here in time. To, for the, to start with that. We'll start with getting here on time for greeting people around you, you know. Talk to people. It's amazing. I cannot tell you how many times that just a common value of courtesy or, or kindness can lead people down a road to say, I mean, Dad's talking about the big ones today in the sermon, how we respond in suffering. This isn't responding in suffering, folks. This is just expressing common values of kindness, generosity, and care to people. And that can pass, people, uh, that can pass into initiation or saying, I want why they have that. All right. Does that make sense? All right. So imitation. And for some, it's a good beginning. For others, it is not. And culture is not everyone's road into Jerusalem. And for some, it's a road out. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't. That doesn't mean that some people won't reject those things and move out. But just because those pathways may become roads that go out does not mean that they should not also be roads that come in as well. So we recognize those. So here's the last part of the quote from Lewis, and then we'll move on to this idea of the suburbs of Jerusalem. And I think Lewis uh, clarifies a little bit more with this one. So he says, if all the cultural values on the way up to Christianity were dim antipasts or ectypes of the truth, an antipast, antipasta, antipasto, right? That means what comes before. It's an appetizer. If they're appetizer or ectypes, if they're a, uh, a sort of not clear picture, but a, a shadowy picture, if you will, of the truth, we can recognize them as such still. And since we must rest and play, where can we do so better than here in the suburbs of Jerusalem? It is lawful to rest our eyes in the moonlight, especially now that we know where it comes from and that it is only sunlight at the second hand. I love that idea. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That if it's moonlight, then we still know that the moonlight is reflective of the sun. The moon doesn't produce its own light. It's reflecting the one true light. Most men glorify God by, by doing to his glory something which is not per se an act of glorifying. Okay, so the first part of that sentence first. Most men, most men and women glorify God by doing something which is not per se an act of glorifying. In other words, the act of glorifying that he's talking about, that is an overt act of glorification, is, is, is the act of, of stated worship. That is being in church. It's actually you know, ra ra the raising of hands, the, uh, the proclamation of the word. Those things are overt acts of glorifying God. Those are, those, are, those are actions that Lewis is saying we do with an absolute conscious sense of, I am at this moment glorifying God, if you will. Does that, does that make sense? The, that every act we do is not an overt act of glorification to God. I fixed dinner for Angie and I last night. That was not an overt act of glorifying God. Hopefully it was an act of service to my wife who 
she deserved service because she cleaned out the garage <laughs> while I went to see a movie. And, you know, so our relationship works like that. It's all good. I fixed her a nice dinner and bought salad for her on the way home and all kinds of good stuff. We're fine. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an overt act. That, that wasn't an overt act of glorifying God, was it? I didn't sit there while I was messing with the sirloin steak on the grill or with the pasta in the water and going, you know, this is, man, I am so glorifying God by fixing dinner for my wife right now, okay? Not an overt act, but it's an act done with care, with, um, I mean, I wanted to serve her. I wanted a good meal for myself. I wanted to enjoy dinner at home on Saturday evening. All those things become, they're not covert acts, but this is what he says. The work of the, they, they, but they, um, an act of which becomes so by being offered. Okay, so sorry, let me jump back up. Most men glorify God by doing to his glory something which is not per se an act of glorifying, but which becomes so by being offered. And that's, that's, that's recognizing that we can do things and then offer them up to God. So the next time, in other words, the next time, and this is where he makes the distinction. Well, let me say this first before I say the next time. The work of the charwoman and the charwoman is literally in this time would be people that went in and cleaned out charcoal stoves and stuff. That's nasty, dirty. If any of you have lived in a place that had charcoal fires, they're what? Dirty, unbelievable. And they, and they send char, charcoal smoke comes out of the thing. If there's not good ventilation and their faces get blackened, the, you know, you, I mean, you Mary Poppins, you remember the Mary Poppins, you know, and everything else. The work of the charwoman. So think about that. In other words, he's literally picking one of the dirtiest jobs that Lewis can think of. The act of the, the work of the charwoman and the work of a poet becomes spiritual in the same way and on the same condition. By taking the things that we do commonly, either for work or creativity, and offering them up. To the Lord to be used. So the next time that, so that's what the next time that you, I let me tell you what I hate doing. I hate, well, I hate physical labor in any form whatsoever. All right. Let's just be clear about that. I hate cutting that, but she likes it. That's fine. That's right. Now I hate cutting the grass. Okay. I do occasionally now my, when is now 13. So he has started doing that. But, you know, they're gone for three weeks with their dad. So I may have to cut the grass this week because Angie's got to travel. I don't want to cut that grass. It's 197 degrees heat index with the humidity. It's terrible. And I mean, it literally, it's evil outside. Hell decided to come reside in Alabama with humidity this summer. And I will go out there and Angie will tell you, when I finish, I do what? I am a grumbling mass of quivering manhood, you know, I'm just like, I just, I'm, Hey, sweetie, doing stop talking to me. You know I mean? It's like, I did this thing for you, right? That is not taking that common action and offering it as an act of glorification of glory to God. And by that, I mean, it means God, it, that, that's that consecrate word that Machen was using earlier. Use it, Lord, for your glory, because not only do the suburbs then become the place you play in, but that's where you take what Machen's talking about and you become becomes the opportunity to consecrate it. Now, what that doesn't mean, it means that the action is offered. It's a personal 
choice and decision. That may lead to discussion and dialogue. Let me tell you how not to get far with that. And that's by going, sweetie, I really didn't want to do this, mow this grass today. But what I did, I did as an act of glory unto God for you. You can thank me later. You know, that's not going to get you very far. That's not actually putting, you know, a cross at the bottom of your painting. Right. But it, it what it is doing is it's, it's doing this. It means that when somebody goes back and looks at what you do and they say, and there's the, 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 the cliched phrases, which really are cliched because they're true, which is if you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence and all that kind of stuff? But it really is actually asking the question. If you're bringing order, if you're expressing uh, art, if you are a part of building cultures around you, if you've actively chosen to engage it in your business, in your family, in your workplace, wherever it is, if somebody looked at it and said, that guy's or that girl, that man or that woman is a Christian. And would somebody look at that and go, are you serious? Or would somebody look at that and say, I can see that. That's where the culture becomes the expression of a belief system that is consistent. Where life, as Rookmacher said right at the beginning, whereas life is one. That's what Lewis and Machen are arguing for here. Now we move on, and the, and the 10 minutes we have left, we move on now. That bell is going to ring. At, that, that clock is about two minutes slow. And so... I just realized that after all this time, I finally looked and realized that the bell's going to ring faster than I thought. So now we're going to look at Richard Niebuhr and this idea of Christ and culture. Okay. So now we've got, we should be involved in culture. Here are ways that we consecrate that culture. We bring holiness to that culture. And this is the fun part. This is where you get to figure out, but what am I? Like, what does that mean? Can I watch this movie? Can I watch that movie? Do I support the arts or do I not support the arts? Do I... Um, what, what is it? But my business needs to make money. All those questions that people ask, right? Um, what happens if I lose my temper? Does that mean my culture is no longer one unified culture anymore, right? Recognizing that this is all part of a continuum. One of the great thinkers of the early 20th century. Now, I, you know, just a quick word about Richard Niebuhr um, and, his, and his work, Christ and Culture. This is one of the classics of 20th century Christian thought. If you are, if you are um, uh, inclined in that direction, I sure I do encourage you to read it. Absolutely. Just so you know, here's where Niebuhr stands uh, on the theological spectrum, if you will. He would be what we would call a neo-Orthodox theologian from the 1940s and 50s and 60s. He and his brother Reinhold Niebuhr were both professors at Yale Divinity School. That means they kind of followed two major names, and this is a super simplification of this, but that means that uh, Karl Barth, who was a guy that we, I would certainly pray and hope he was a Christian, believe he was probably a Christian, but definitely went some directions that we would not go in our Orthodox sort of church, although there's a number of um, folks in the PCA that are uh, discovering renewed interest in Karl Barth, which that's another topic for another time. Um, but Karl Barth and, and then Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein, who was a philosopher of language, okay? He was what we call a, so, so, Reinhold, so, so Niebuhr was a um, neo-Orthodox theologian. I, I strongly believe he was a Christian, believe he understood salvation by faith alone through Christ alone, but was certainly bringing in, basically this was a project that had continued from the mid-1800s 
but on through to now even, and where the, where theologians would give equal sort of equal weight and value to linguistic, philosophical, sociological, and anthropological uh, disciplines as part of constructing a theological framework. I think that may be the simplest way to describe it. Okay, and and Niebuhr, both the Niebuhr brothers were a, were a part of that. Some went way far afield from what we would consider to be Orthodox Christianity, or as these guys would call it, conservativist Christianity. And then some would, you know, kind of tried to toe the line between the two. He was, he and his brother both were very influential on this, a school now that's called post-liberal theology, which is very significantly concerned around producing uh, understanding theology principally as a narrative. We're not going to talk about that right now. If you have questions, feel free to ask me afterwards or at the picnic today, right? That's today. Or at the picnic. I'll be happy to explain basically what that means at that point in time. All that to say, we take this from Niebuhr and go, awesome. And if you read it and you're like, that's amazing. I need to go read everything Niebuhr wrote. Then do so with, with caution. Do so with a good, solid Orthodox thinker or writer beside you. And I'd recommend guys like Kevin Van Hooser would be good. They have a good balanced approach to these kinds of writers. Um, there's a number of folks like that out there. So I wanted to make sure I gave you that clarification. Now, what Niebuhr did, which was amazing, was he outlined five basic approaches that Christians take to engaging with culture. Okay. Now, I'm going to put this on an actual continuum for you in just a second. It's going to have a chart, but I wanted to run through them real quick with you before we did because we're doing this fast for the exclude. This is Christ against culture, Christ of the culture, Christ above the culture, Christ and culture in paradox with one another and a Christ sort of that transforms culture, if you will. All right. These two, this is why this is important to know. This is on a spectrum are on the opposite sides of the spectrum. And then these three are sort of in the middle. Okay. So Christ against culture and Christ of culture are on the opposite sides of the spectrum. On the one side, you have a belief that says for that, that Christ against culture, which sort of says for the exclusive Christian, history is the story of a rising church or Christian culture and a dying pagan civilization. In other words, what does this thing that's living have to do with this thing that's dying? Okay. Does that make sense? Christ is against the culture that's that surrounds it he the culture is evil the culture is an expression of evil and it is on its way to death and if you will most of us i mean you probably would find the the most clear expression of this would probably be in romans 1 is what people would look at for the most clear expression of this okay the obvious thing that happens from this is that people move out of the culture that a christian says I should therefore be very separated from that culture. And we get a number of philosophical and religious systems that arise from that, like the Amish or the Mennonite uh, communities that live in environments that are completely separated from the world and the world around it. It's like the Amish are not anti-technology, for instance. They are just, they just say that once a new tech, we'll wait 
50 years before we implement it. And the reason why, now, and, and, and it's easy, these two are really easy to just super dismiss, but we're going to get to Keller's expression of it, I guess next week and not this week, which will be, which will actually show you, they're actually, even with these two that are on the extremes, there is something to think about with them at least. There is at least something to consider. What the Amish do is they say, look, this is introduced, we're going to wait 50 years because we're going to watch and see the effect that thing, that technos, that work, that thing that's uh, an invention that helps work is what that sort of basically means. That new technology, what its impact is. We could use a little bit more of that ourselves probably in some ways, right? Now, the other side of the coin, though, is the Christ of culture. For the cultural Christian, you got the exclusivist Christian who's way over here. Everything is exclude, exclude ourselves from everything else. But then you've got the cultural or the inclusive Christian. History is the story of the spirit's encounter with nature. In other words, that that, that sounds really, if, you, if anybody remembers their old English lit classes, that sounds really transcendentalist. History is the story of the spirit's encounter with nature. Spirit being capitalized, meaning Holy Spirit. But what that means is, is that the, that the Christ of culture belief system basically says the opposite of Christ against culture. It means that the culture and all of its expressions and the natural world around it are infused with the spirit of God. The, or as, as, as a further afield the, theologian that was around the same time as Niebuhr, Paul Tillich would say, the all father, the all being, the God of the, the God of foundations, using these terms to describe God as if God did not have enough of his own terms in the Bible. Um, we got to come up with some more to figure out what that looks like. They would, but this is what the argument would be that God infuses everything around you, all aspects of culture. Therefore, there are no aspects of culture that are inherently evil, only aspects of culture that have been used evil, evilly, if you will, not really a word, um, or at least not not in that sentence construction. They've been used for evil, if you will, okay? So that's the Christ of culture paradigm. Then you've got the Christ above culture, and this is sort of a synthesis approach, if you will, where history is a period of preparation under law, reason, and gospel, and the church for an ultimate communion of the soul with God. In other words, Christ is up here, and culture is kind of doing what? kind of slowly getting there. It'll never get there completely. This isn't necessarily like a, like a strong, uh, you know, post-millennial view per se, it, but it's saying that under law, under reason, under the gospel and the church, we're being prepared for an eternity with God. And, and, and then when that happens, we'll sort of synthesize the best of God and the best of culture, and it'll all come together in this thing we call the new heavens and the new earth. It'll all kind of come together, if you will. But, but, but Christ rules that. Christ is above that, okay? So it's not that culture is inherently good. It's that God is moving us towards a good culture as he's above it. And then there's the Christ and culture in paradox. This is, there's a struggle, the dualist. There's a struggle against, uh, between faith and unbelief. And there's a period between the giving of the promise of life and its fulfillment. This is kind of this. I mean, there's a there's a little bit of this in our uh, Presbyterian model of the already but not yet. Right. There's a struggle. The evil one is still in the world. And there is a struggle between these things. The promise 
of that life has been given, but it hasn't been fulfilled. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go forward. We're not on this necessarily upward progression. The struggle is part of the waiting until the fulfillment, if you will. In other words, there are parts of culture that don't need to be redeemed necessarily. Does that make sense? All right. And then finally, that Christ is transforming culture. And that is for the conversionist. History is the story of God's mighty deeds and humanity's response to them. Conversionists live somewhere, somewhat less between the times and somewhat more in the divine now than do the other followers listed above. In other words, what that means is to give you the quick, while, while I'm explaining that, give you, the, give you a chart that shows you a little bit more of what that looks like on a continuum. What that means is that Christians see the sort of now and the work we do now as being part of transforming that culture to more look like what's going to happen later on in the new heavens and the new earth, in the return of Christ. That the work we're doing now is part of the return of Christ, okay? Now, naturally, most of us in this classroom would probably immediately sort of go, yeah, I kind of, we're converting culture to a better culture and redeeming that culture as it goes. Yeah, I'd probably fall under that category or so. And you may, but you actually may not less so than you might think. And so we're going to look at next week, Keller breaks these four. We're going to we'll review these four. And what I'll do is I will take this individual picture, JPEG, and give it to you, Mary Claire, for you to just send out to everybody. All right. So take some time this week. You've got the basic outline of this and read through these and sort of go like, I don't know, which one do I see? Or, or do this project. Actually try to figure out, do I think that which one do I, what, what could be good in each one and what could be bad in each one? Think through that a little bit. And if you really want to get tricky, as wonderful folks at a, at a church, think through what are biblical passages that could possibly support each one. Because there's passages that could support each one, okay? And write some of those down and bring those to class with you next week. And that's, that's your homework assignment for everybody, all right? And, uh, and then we'll go over these again, looking at the continuum, and then we'll get Keller's view of it when we get there.